Osiris. coming up to the end of this decade there's been quite a bit of music from the 2010 up until right now absolutely there's been some excellent music that's been played here over the last 10 years some excellent albums some records that i'm starting to get really scared about them being 9 10 almost 11 years old um we here at beyond the pond as you guys know have been counting down our top 10 I think this last year was top 20 favorite albums of each year but there's a whole six years of music before when beyond the pond started in the decade so over the course of the next few months we're going to release a bonus episode once a month counting down our 10 favorite records of each year of the 2010s until we get to 2019 we're really excited about this we're going to dive in get super nostalgic talk a bit about where we were in that, our heads at that point in time, what we were discovering musically, and I think our lists are going to really reflect who we were as we both grew as listeners and people throughout the decade. I went back and looked at some of these lists, and it was nostalgic and kind of shocking at the same time. I was thinking, wow, you can put out a fantastic record in 2013 and fall off the face of the earth. Yeah, it's wild um, to go back and see some of the bands I listened to in uh, 2011, 2012 that just don't make reappearances and then the ones that did make reappearances in like 2017 and 2018. So we're definitely excited to bring this to you guys. Keep an eye out for it here within the next month. It'll probably drop in mid-March and uh, we'll just go from there. Pretty stoked. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode number 56 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. 
This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally use the music of the band Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. As you know, we love Fish. We are Fish fans. But the problem with many Fish fans is they get myopic. They just listen to Fish. They will dig into any one of their 300 tapes, the fanciful labeled J cards and the set list and know them inside and out and just refer to certain shows by the venue name. You know what they're talking about. But then you say, hey, do you want to go see this other non-fish band with me? And they say, what? And that makes them, just doesn't make them a pleasant person. We're trying to combat that. Yeah, you don't need your friend who's not willing to uh, branch out and go see some crazy noise psychedelic shows. You just don't need them. Why would you need them? I don't know. You don't. No, you got to branch out. So we are here uh, in episode 56, welcoming back our second repeat guest. Uh, now I think officially a friend of the pod. Uh, Steve, definitely a friend of the pod. Definitely. Been uh, been really great for us over the last uh, about 10 months since we had him on. Um, offered up a lot of really good advice. Really awesome music writer, big fish fan, Mr. Stephen Hyden. We are very excited to have him on the show here. If you haven't read either of his books, being your favorite band is Killing Me, Twilight of the Gods, we recommend you do so highly. And also, check out his column on uprocks.com, because I believe he is uh, their cultural critic. He is. Yes, he is. He uh, has been doing some really great writing here over the last uh, couple of months, and um, we're always into his work. I know that his podcast is a bit on hiatus right now. You can find him on Twitter. Uh, he is both insightful and humorous. He had a really great tweet thread a couple of days ago as of recording about re-listening to Talking Heads Remaining in Light for the first time in a while and how great, big, standard, but revolutionary albums are that like you know them by, by heart and when you re-listen to them again for the first time in sometimes years, the impact that they have and uh, just really spot on in terms of his musical criticism. And we love the way his, uh, his head thinks about music and fish. Um, we ended up talking with Steve about some fish, kind of going through some of uh, our favorite sets of 2018. Also weaving in some info about uh, some more recent albums that both of us happen to be listening to. And, you know, it's a, a very interesting freewheeling conversation. And I'm already looking forward to having him back on again in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And we wanted to talk a little bit about Casvold Voxed and kind of the impact that that had on the band. So um, I think you guys are going to like this. There's some really great content in here. And, you know, it's great to hear from someone like Steven, who is still discovering fish in so many ways, but has such a keen ear towards music and music culture and music history that he can add a really unique perspective on the band's history. And on that note, let's get to our conversation with Steven Hyden. <laughs> Shadows 
was just going to say, are people getting a little spoiled right now? Because I feel like, um, certainly of the 3.0 era, I feel like there's a consistency to them right now where I feel like there's always at least some moment in every show that's like really great. And when I started listening to Fish uh, in sort of a more committed way, you know, listening to every show, you know, like in the mid 2010s, like 13, 14, I didn't feel like that was the case. Like I felt like there were some shows that were just total duds at that time. And I don't feel like there were any shows in 18 that were total duds. I mean, there were some that were better than others, but there was, there's always something in every show that's like really great. And I feel like pretty consistently there'd be a standout show like maybe once every couple weeks or so like a really great show like when i was making my list the qualification that i had first of all was like was this a show that like i was kind of obsessed with like when it came out like where i had to listen to certain parts of the show even like the entire set like that those do it a bunch of times and i came up with like five or six shows like kind of off the top of my head that I already knew, you know, I didn't have to think that hard. And I think that's a pretty good indication um, of a pretty consistent run. So I don't know. Do you feel like people are maybe a little spoiled right now? I think it's, I think it's happening to a certain degree. Um, I, I think what's happening with fish right now is to your point, like, 09 through 2012 was this big return you know what can we can we keep doing this it's a lot of fun when we get on stage people love us people are still showing up there'd be like a great show every tour but there wouldn't be great tours or great runs of shows and then that steadily improved 2012 13 parts of 14 and into 15 you saw the band really peaking um and then obviously the Baker's Dozen, and it's, that's always felt to me as a kind of celebration of where the band was almost 10 years into their return and in their overall career, like this level that they'd, they'd achieved in uh, rock music. I think that 2018 always felt like something of a transition. Like 2017 was a... Uh, it, it was like they, they achieved this level of success and then, and they always tend to do this throughout their career. You could look at 94, 98. Um, you can look at even 2014 and 2016 in this standpoint. There's always going to be a year that is almost a reset. And then the following year, they really peak based off of that. And so I think with the inclusion of the Leslie that really challenged the band to connect in some ways in the early parts of summer. Um, and I think with them really filtering a filtering in a bunch of new songs rather than thinking about their sets, the way that they had the Baker's dozen, it just meant that there was, there were some moments that were great and some moments where it felt like they were trying to work things out as they went along. If that makes sense. I think 2018 kind of mirrors 2016 in that the summer tour was clearly inferior to the fall tour. The fall tour in both of those years was so good that people kind of either excused the summer tour or kind of like went back and cherry picked the best spots of it. Like I know in, uh, in 2018, for example, 
the first two shows in Lake Tahoe, those were um, those were basically sound checks relative to what came afterwards. <laughs> Trey was just screwing with his rig. The band wasn't hooking up for whatever reason. Even the live fish recordings sound really compressed and not as good as the rest of the summer. So if those, if the only two, if the only two shows I saw in twenty eighteen were Tahoe, I would have been kind of disappointed. You know, I I agree that fall was better than summer and i would say even after the halloween show when they introduced the new songs like the shows after that were even better than like the first part of the fall tour like that like the new year's run was really great and we'll talk about i'm sure we'll talk about some of those shows when we get to our list but i mean i remember 2016 because that was the first summer where i saw multiple shows and i don't think people remember like how disjointed a lot of those shows were like, I remember the feeling at the time being that like fish almost forgot how to structure a set. Like just the flow was really weird in a lot of those. And to, you know, kind of compare it to 2018, if people feel like 2018 was a down year, I would say go back to 2016. (laughs) I remember, I remember being at the Wrigley field show, the second show and and feeling like, because uh, that was considered sort of the superior show, like the second set. Yeah. Um, I think they came out. They played Carini and they play. They played Fuffhead for the first time. I think in a while. Um, and I remember being really into that set because it was one of the more exciting sets that they were playing at that time. But I think if you listen to that set compared to like an average 2018 summer set, I, I think 2018 would have blown it away. I mean, I I really feel like since. No, I was going to say, we have actually trashed those Wrigley shows on several occasions. Although, oh, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that year, especially coming off of 2015, I remember my, my feelings coming out of Wrigley Field were not only did they seem to have forgotten how to construct a set, but they seemed to have forgotten how to like really dig in and jam. And I saw a lot of shows that, and listened to a lot of shows where the band just there, there's a show from Portland, Maine, where they play like Oy. 28 songs and Is that there's a tweezer in the show. I think that there's like one. Turns, um, right. There's there's a tweezer in the show that goes like nine minutes. Like they they weren't even trying to expand at all. So you're absolutely right here, and I think that as we get into our countdown, the sets that we've got here all have standout jams that would rival the majority of. 3.0 and some jams in 1.0 in that sense. Yeah. I, I just feel like since the Baker's dozen, they've been at a really high level and maybe people feel like those Baker's dozen shows were so great and they haven't topped those yet. So it feels worse in comparison to those highs of 2017, but I still feel like the, the level that they're at is still higher than it has been for certainly the years that I've been kind of paying close attention to them. Like, I feel like this is a really great time to be following this band. And then, you know, to have that Halloween show, which uh, was such a, you know, a genuinely, not just like a cool thing that they did, like a unique, uh, you know, thing to do on Halloween. Uh, But those songs are really good. Like those are some of their best songs. I think that they've, put out during this era so and they've 
And they've integrated those, you know, and, and the way that they integrated those new songs into the subsequent shows after that, um, really, I think bodes well for like 2019. Like, I, it's like, wow, there's like so many new songs that like, I'm, you're actually excited to hear and they already kind of feel like they know where to take them. And also, you know, I was just going to say, just like going on that, I think that the fan base especially took to say it to me, Santos, so much. And the fact <laughs> that that was the big New Year's song, I'm almost thinking to myself, how can they just incorporate that into like a regular set? Like the response to that song that got on Halloween and afterwards and on the New Year's show, that's almost, it's almost too special. <laughs> so I'm just curious to see how. Right. That plays out. That song, like Turtle in the Clouds, when they did that with the choreographed dance in the 29th, which we'll get to all that, but, you know. Well, there's another song, another newish song that is more polarizing in the fan base that I came to really love as a jam vehicle. Maybe we could talk. Are we going to segue into our list here? Because I could talk about this song in my honorable mention show. Let's do it. Let's get into the honorable. What do you got? So my honorable mention show is uh, is August fourth, uh, Alpharetta. There you go. Uh, I guess I guess that was Saturday night, yes. and um, the Soul Planet from there is like the jewel of that set. And I gotta say, um, people love to hate on Soul Planet. I am a Soul Planet defender. I enjoy Soul Planet, and I feel like. That version in particular, which I think is like, what, like about 22 minutes long or something like that. I mean, it, it goes off. Um, I mean, I like the beginning. It doesn't bother me. I mean, I feel like people get used to certain fish songs and they forget maybe that they were corny at the beginning, like Down With Disease. I, I've read people didn't like that at the beginning. And then obviously that became one of the great, you know, kind of fish rockers in the canon. I don't know if Soul Planet is going to achieve the heights of Down With Disease, but um, I thought, like, at that show in particular, that song really shone. It was sort of like a surprise, like, wow, Soul Planet owns this. And that was a great... I think that was... Would you say that was the highlight of the summer, like the Alpharetta shows? Yes, unquestionably. I I would say, without question, those were the best back-to-back-to-back shows of the summer. Yeah. Definitely the Alfreda run, those three shows were the highlight of the summer. They were not fucking around. And I should distinguish, I'm talking about the second set. So we're, because we're ranking yes. sets. So like the second set of of, of August 4th, 8-4-18. Uh, yeah, and that, and that shows up on my list. And it's, it's for that Soul Planet, which I had seen it a week prior in um los or in uh, los angeles and they played it at the forum um a show that i think ends up on dave's list or a set that ends up on dave's list that um i will have some choice words about but i i, I remember <laughs> loving that version <laughs> and then they played you know because august 3rd had like the great carini and the really great ghost in set one um but then august 4th to me that set flows perfectly with some really unique song selections and it's capped by that big soul planet that you know for as cheesy as the lyrics may be um for as happy-go-lucky as trey is in that song and potentially out of touch with what's actually happening in the world when they hit that like minor chord coming out of the song they can really go anywhere and they've proven it 
pretty much every time that they played it, even during show opening versions as Nashville and Dick shows. Um, so yeah, I, I love that set as well. And okay, here's my defense of Soul Planet too. You know, people want to they want to knock the lyrics to that song. But I appreciate the optimism of that song, as well as a lot of the other recent songs that have emerged, you know, pre the Halloween set, like the the newer songs that they were playing, you know, Set Your Soul Free, you know, songs like that. Everything's Right being another example. Um, you know, I was reading something actually, Katie Turr was talking about how, you know, she's obviously this like famous Fish fan. And she talked about how she got back into the band during the, the presidential election because she was covering Trump and like yes. people would, would scream at her every day and like give her the finger like all these just crazy mega heads and she was saying that she got back into fish because she would listen to Billy Breeds and it reminded her of this sort of happy time in her life and it was sort of an oasis away from all this terrible shit and I think a band like this is like that for a lot of people like you listen I know for me I often listen to Fish when I'm done working. Like I will have a beer after I'm done working, and I'll listen to Fish, and it's a it's a way to kind of ease myself out of work and into the nighttime. And it, it's a great thing for people. So I appreciate that sort of aspect of that song. I think to add to that, you know, that big GQ piece that just came out that uh, talked about um, sober musicians and know their experiences with addiction and their experiences with um uh, creativity and the years since then it, it, i was thinking a lot about trey songs that came out right after fish got back together and right after he was recently sober and going through drug court and all that songs like light songs like backwards on the number line obviously there's a huge lyrical hand there from his uh best friend tom marshall um but there's definitely something to be said about where the songs are nowadays in you know 10 12 years on from that really traumatic experience songs like set your soul free songs like soul planet they seem optimistic in a way that he just and the, and the way that trey sings it he just knows that the way he's living right now is the best he's ever lived he's the healthiest he's ever been he's in many ways probably the happiest he's ever been and you just hear that in you know just come through in a song like soul planet um so i, I definitely i definitely appreciate the optimism for it i happen to like that song a lot of people refer to those songs everything's right soul planet and set your soul free as the up with wooks trilogy <laughs> and i guess you could also add in uh what's that song rise rise come together which also did not make it into the new year's run I mean, even like Blaze On, I feel like is in that same. It's a, that's another one. Totally. Um, but again, I appreciate that. There's enough darkness, man. I I like that they uh, can add some light, and yet at the same time, I feel like as optimistic as those songs lyrically, they do often take them in darker directions after the sort of main part of the song, which I and I, and I appreciate that too. You know, that you can kind of go into the abyss after having a little optimism, you know? Uh, so that's always a cool thing when they could do that.
honorable mention is I think one that you will have in your top five is uh, November 2nd, 2018 from Vegas being the first set. Just because that whole show is fantastic. That whole Vegas run is great. But the version of Mercury that they played in that set in addition to being the best version of that song it's ever played, I think that was the best single best 25, 25 minutes of that fall tour. And just, you know, Brian, that's a song that we've loved from the inception. It's a song we talked about a lot when we had Tom Marshall on. We think that's the best song Fish has written in 3.0. And I think while the song kind of took flight a little bit at uh, Chicago back on um, October 26th in that first set, what they did with it in November twenty, uh, the November second Vegas show. I just remember sitting on my couch thinking, "All right, this is good. It's kind of quiet. It's coming back. It's coming back. It's getting gorgeous." At the end of it, holy shit! I was standing up and cheering like my team had just won the World Series. <laughs> so that whole show is good, but the fact that that set is only an honorable mention of uh, have very interesting top five I think so that's what I would put thirty-first set to the first night of Dicks, uh, mm. the first show back after Curveball, one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Carried over the tradition, I've seen Fish at Dicks three times. Every time, the Friday night show has been one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Um, that was we talked about this um, uh, back when we did our Dicks episode, um, Dicks transitions episode. Yes, right? that is. The only other show I can compare that to is the last um, night of Coventry in terms of I've never seen a show that emotional, the crowd reaction, the band reaction, just I think having the festival canceled the way that it was uh, really affected them going into that performance. And you get a Harry hood in the second, in the second slot of the show for, I think it was the first time it was a first set hood in 3.0. But the second set, you've got really great, somewhat condensed no man in no man's land a carini where trey is just casting off curveball demons um a really great mercury and then light to end it which once again it's it was hose trey um i was i was just exhausted coming out of that show it was one of those um i felt like i i almost didn't need to see the next two nights and i ended you know i ended up going and neither one of them lived up to the expectations of the first but um as a result of that, I've, I've gone back and listened to that set over and over again. Yeah, I remember watching that or, or listening to that show, and uh, it would have been amazing to see it in person. Like, I wish I could have been in that room. Um, listening to it, I just felt like, man, they're trying really hard <laughs> to make up for yeah, that festival. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really good show 
it did feel a little bit like there was a lot of pressure that they were feeling maybe to like live up to yes. whatever disappointment that people were feeling and to, and to make it up to them so that and maybe that's just something i'm imposing on it but that would be like my one kind of thing it's like they didn't seem loose there it seemed like they were trying really hard to play an amazing show and it was really good but like you know i like it when they don't push quite that hard yes My number five and number four are both sentimental choices based on as much of the show as it is the experience that I had listening to it. Like they're, they feel very personal to me. So I, I might be overrating them a little bit just because the experience of, uh, they were so memorable for me. Um, but I think that's an important part of this, you know, yeah. like, like my number five show is a show that I was at. And I think when you're actually at a show, it's different than when you listen to it. There's so many other factors that color how you feel about it. And yeah, I was at the um, the Rosemont shows at uh, you know, the the ones right before Halloween. That was like my first three show stand. So that was a really awesome experience, just to be able to camp out, you know, in uh, scenic Rosemont. <laughs> which, which is not scenic and that, and that arena is a dump no. but it's a yes. great dump um but anyway it, it was the saturday night show the october 27th okay. show and i feel like that's sort of like the runt of the litter maybe like i feel like people really liked the 20 the, the show on friday and i and the show on sunday kind of was a little bit hit or miss but there were some real great highs in there and people kind of forget the the saturday night show but that was like the most fun i had that entire run and i will admit that like part of that is informed by me having the perfect level of intoxication at that show i had done it too much <laughs> at the friday show and i wasn't quite i had to kind of be more conservative on sunday because i was going home the next day but saturday night was awesome you know a lot of people were dressed up i was standing next to a guy dressed as mike ditka and we became fast <laughs> friends, even though I'm a Packer fan. Um, but to me, the jewel of that second set, I'm going to pick the second set. I went all second set, by the way, which I wanted, I, I wanted to try to pick a first set. And there were a couple first sets that I almost picked just to make it more interesting. But I had to just go with what I liked the most. And so they're all second sets. But I feel like a really underrated jam of, of, of 2018 is the, is the No Man's from the second yeah. set the 25 minute no man's which which i've listened to several times it's the thing i've listened to the most from that mm. run and i th I just think it's really great and i know i was talking about it with you brian you were talking about how towards the end of that you you feel like you can almost hear a little bit of the riff from uh, death don't hurt very long them, yes i'm kind yes. of jamming that out kind of giving a little subliminal preview before uh the halloween show which when you pointed that out it was cool to go back and kind of I could totally hear 
that after you, after you said that. So I was glad you told me that. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been finding those little like moments listening back. I, I know that, um, the Harry hood from Dick's, there's a moment about eight or nine minutes in where you can hear Trey playing around with the riff from we are come to outlive our brains. And, um, you know, this, this, this fall tour especially reminds me so much of, um, uh, 2013 and 2014 in the sense that they had written new albums for both of those years and this year and none of the fan base knew it and when you go back and re-listen to their jams you start to hear them they can't overtly play the riff from death don't hurt very long but like that's clearly where trey's head's at like that's probably what he's most excited about and he knows a week from now the whole fan base is going to be most excited about. and there's another set later on on my list where that song appears in a very crucial spot so like that's one of my favorite recent songs as well but yeah i love the nomad like the no man's that's honestly like one of my favorite you know sort of jams of 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 the fall tour and then it segues nicely into steam and then you know you got chuck dust chalk dust torture which is always a song i love hearing especially live um, so, you know, I could see a lot of people looking at this set and not being wild by it, but again, it's a sentimental pick. I had a great time watching that, uh, so that informs it. So I wanted to get it into my list. So it's a number five. <laughs> Number five, kind of a, a controversial pick. Almost, um, <laughs> I kind of picked this one just to be a bit of like a rabble rouser. But I really, really do like this set. This is um, set two of uh, July twenty eighth from LA Forum. This was night two. This is a set that, if you look at it on paper, you think, "Wow, this is really terrible." It's got. Fuego, Birds of a Feather, Meat Stick, Soul Planet, Wingsuit, and Cavern with a Gajabu opener. Um, me and Brian have said many times on this podcast that if you're going to play Meat Stick under penalty of death, do not play it in the second set. And they do it here. <laughs> Birds of the Feather, not a very inspiring uh, second set song. But the reason I picked this set is because this is probably the best example of don't, ju- don't judge the book by its cover. Because Fuego, um, generally speaking, we've talked about it before, Fuego, usually you'll get like 10, I don't know, 8 to 10 minutes of rock and roll, but it kind of doesn't really deliver. Like if you ever have to, if you've had too many IPAs and got to use the bathroom, usually Fuego is like a pretty safe bet. And yet, this is the best version of Fuego that they've ever played. This actually has a jam that's kind of very similar to um, the Mercury for November 2nd and that they bring it down to whisper and they keep building it and building it and building it. And then by the end of it, this is what I know like me and Brian talked about. This is like there's two outs in the bottom of the ninth and then there's a walk 
Then there's a bunt that gets by the second baseman for the air. And then there's like the walk-off home run. So this Fuego, Trey keeps playing with a riff that I think um, is actually the chorus of the Kinks song, Celluloid Heroes. And he just keeps oh, yeah. doing this like three chord progression. He just keeps playing the Celluloid Heroes riff. And by the end of it, it's triumphant. So that's by far my favorite version of Fuego. And the Soul Planet is maybe the best non-Alpharetta version of Soul Planet. It's just incredibly uplifting, incredibly bright, just this big, happy, fiery D major jam, which actually lands into a very well-placed and very good wingsuit. And just the Fuego, they actually played this show when I was vacationing with my family in Cape Cod. So I think I was listening to this set on like a mixer late, late at night because it was on the West Coast. It was like one o'clock in the morning. And I was just entranced by this Fuego and probably would like put myself in the car listening to the live fish app version of this Fuego. My family was like saying like, get out of the car. What the hell are you doing? No, no, no. I got to hear this. So can I just say that? uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say Fuego is in my number five set as well so like we're repping for fuego and soul planet big time so far uh so the beyond the pond <laughs> listeners i don't know what they're thinking right now but we're repping fuego and soul planet hard i love it they're showing up in multiple sets so far the song the song that we are on record the song that we are on record saying uh has a 160 batting average is uh somehow showing up here in, in in our in our top five yeah this is like your like utility infield your bench player called up from triple a who hits the walkout <laughs> triple i think you know i i put fuego a little bit higher than that i mean like it's not like 555 or something like which is like that no. is like it was 555 <laughs> no, like a like a like point zero like point zero nine zero or something then like if that's 160 um I fifty five is Mike trying to sound like Little Feet and kind of doing it okay. That's yeah. Five fifty five is um, they made one effort on the debut version to do anything other than just play the song, um, and every other time they start it, and I feel like the entire fan base goes okay and goes and gets a beer. Uh, <laughs> this show seven twenty eight. Uh, this is hands down of the 72 fish shows i've seen to this point the worst set list i've ever seen um and and one of the most satisfying shows i've ever walked out of i i this show like to dave's point don't judge a book by its cover i i, I hung out with um friend of the pod ben greenfield um on twitter at guy Forget, opt um one of my favorite people to talk about fish with and it was the first time i'd seen a show with him and Every time a song started, we looked at each other and, you know, kind of complained a little bit. And we're like, why, why, why did they pick this song right here? And then every time that song ended, we were like, wow, that was an amazing version of a song I did not want to hear. Uh, it, was, it was a very bizarre show for a very, the form is really strange in the sense that it feels like Madison Square Garden without any of the money that was put into Madison Square Garden to refurbish it. Um, but the crowd is the most neurotic fish crowd I've ever been around for reasons that I can only assume because it's LA. And uh, I don't know if like the energy in the room was really strange, but fish threw out a crazy, weird, very bland set list. 
and somehow made a great show out of it. My number five we've discussed. I don't want to go too deep into it um, because it's Alpharetta, uh, August 4th, set two. Um, I will say as well, I, I kind of picked this as a contrarian. I know that the feeling in the fan base is that August 3rd was the show of the run. I am a staunch August 4th defender. I think that the first set, the Choctaw's Torture, the Wolfman's Brother, um, there's there's just some really weird performances of classic fish songs the whole show flows together in a really unique way i think that there's a lengthwise into a maze and this second set i just i press play and i just don't stop once i press play on cross-eyed i just can't stop i have to listen to the whole set um so let's uh jump into number four steven what do you got so this is another sentimental pick for me although i feel like it's probably a little more defensible than my number five. It's not quite as personal of a show as that. It's the uh, night three at the gorge, uh, July 22nd show. Hmm. And I feel like this whole show was really great. Like you mentioned uh, birds of a feather uh, before, which was a song I never really cared about, but like they, they packaged it at this show with the birds. I think they played the birds first and then they played birds of a feather and it was awesome and they kind of like incorporated parts of the birds into birds of a feather and it was like a really exciting performance it's like one of my favorite times ever really loving that song um but the second set um i think just flowed really really great and like you know they 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 kicked off the set with with cross-eyed and painless which i think is i think probably my favorite cover that they do you know either that or drowned would be like the two favorite cover songs to hear or roses are free uh would be another one that i love but um you know they played cross-eyed and painless i feel like they they played it quite a bit in 2018 it kind of popped up in various sets that i liked a lot and they were able to actually kind of incorporate elements of that song throughout the second set it was almost like a uh sort of a recurring motif uh that you would hear like the still waiting part and it, 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 it they really tied it together well through the end of the set they played an awesome sort of mind melting split open and melt you know that really kind of descends into madness you know at some point in a really beautiful way the way that song can and then they they, they they pull out of the madness and they kind of go back to cross-eyed and painless at the end in a really beautiful way that kind of ties it together. But just, you know, just the way that I, I mean, the cross-eyed, which I think it's about an 18 minute version and then it goes into twist and twist can be kind of a hit or miss song for me, but that was another, that's another song where they kind of take it in sort of an evil direction after starting in, you know, with the song and it kind of melts into this kind of beautiful kind of evil sounding jam. 
So those three songs in particular, the cross-eyed and the twist, and then that awesome split open and, and meld at the end. Um, it was just great. And, and, and that was a night, you know, I was listening to, to, to mix LR. I was driving back from I, my friend's father passed away and I went to the funeral, uh, about five hours away from my, from my home. And instead of staying there, I was like, there's a fish show tonight. It's on the West coast. So it's going to get started around nine thirty. I'm going to drive all night and I'm going to listen go. to the show. So, I was, <laughs> oh, so, so, the, so, so as long as my drive was, that was the length of that show. So just to hear it, listen to that on headphones and the, and the signal was strong, you know, it sounded really great. It just driving through the night and hearing them play that it was just such a beautiful experience. You know, it really added it to what I felt like, on its own was a really great show, but that just kind of kicked it up a notch, you know, the way I was able to listen to it. Um, and I still feel like I revisited that second set getting ready to do this episode. And I still feel like that holds up really well. Yeah. That's, that's my number four as well. That second set. And um, I, I watched that show on the, on the live webcast. And um, I remember, so this was coming right after the, um, really kind of nasty incident that happened at the gorge i think the night of the 21st where there were rumors of or there were apparently neo-nazis and there were uh, race racially charged uh, attacks that were happening and there was a lot of negativity within the scene and a lot of people were demanding that the band make some sort of a statement even though not all the facts were in and it was kind of just confusion and there was a lot of uh just kind of negativity around um, the fish scene at that point in time and I remember they came out and they played The Curtain With, which is a song that they closed out Coventry with. And it's the kind of song that just feels very soothing for Fish and very youthful and hopeful. And it really just set the tone for the show. And it turned out to be one of my favorite shows the whole year, uh, the whole show. I would the, the first set from this would definitely be in a top 10 or at very worst a top 15 of the year for me from a set standpoint. I love the Reba. The Wombat has a really cool jam. Um, but then the second set is, I would say, probably a top 10 um, set of the last five years for me and one of the top 20 sets of the overall 3.0 era. It reminds me a lot of probably my favorite, well, up until this year, we'll get to that, but my one of my favorite New Year's Eve run sets that they played in 3.0, which was 12, 29, 13. There's a great Down with Disease, a Karini, a waves, a twist, uh, David Bowie, Golgi apparatus, just very classic. It feels like uh, Fish is recording a proper live album. Like they could almost release set two from the gorge and it work as a kind of a live dead type of uh, release for, for fans to get into the band and just like hear a snippet of what Fish sounds like. It touches in some ways on the ambient soundscapes that you've heard in shows like Fukuoka, the 2000 show that we've covered it, it just it, it really hit everything i'm looking for from the band and thematically it flowed in a way that an album would.
my number four, Two Nights Later, the show from uh, the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in San Francisco, July 24th, the second set. So I just like that set because there's no lulls. It's got a huge a song I heard the ocean sing. It gets very dank and underwater, as that song should. Up until then, probably the best version of Mercury that they had played. And then the Carini in that set, um, a high school buddy of mine who I think I mentioned once before when talking about this Carini, uh, my friend Dermot, was at that show. And he said the band, I mean, the band found a second gear in that Carini, which is why they played it so goddamn much in the rest of 2018. This is a song I had kind of, I got a little sick of in 2018 because it seemed like they opened every second set with it. But this version, just going from like very low slung funk, which I think was almost like a MoMA dance tease to a very uplifting, very major key jam is probably my favorite version of the song from the year. And then after that, they could downshift and they go into Maze. So you go from Maze to Boogie on Reggae Woman and Harry Hood's The Cherry on Top. It's just a very well put together set from top to bottom that I think still holds up. Plus the Scrimming Coil Encore, which they hardly ever encore at that anymore. I love this set too. This would have been in the running maybe like at seven or eight for me. Like it was definitely the ones, one of the sets I revisited as I was making uh, my list. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm a big Karini head. That's probably my favorite song to hear them play live. Um, like still, it, it would at least be in the top three or four. And Karini appears in one of my sets later on in a very kind of crucial spot. Um, but uh, yeah, like you mentioned, like that song I heard the ocean sing, which is another song that I'm kind of like, sometimes I like it. Sometimes I, I you know, I'm sort of indifferent about it, but that's a great version. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. It's kind of like their attempt to be a shoegaze band. <laughs> right. You get these like big layers of guitar and the page vocals are kind of off in the background. But yeah, Karina, they, they, they played Karina so much in 2018 that even my wife, who does not care for fish, but she'll watch the webcast and me, she'll say, Ugh, the song again? <laughs> Like, wow, the fact that you are recognizing Karini, that they played a lot. They really played a lot. Anyway. It should really be noted that the first set of this show as well was really well played. It had a bunch of random songs kind of splattered together that worked. Opened up with a nearly 13-minute, there's a pigtail, nearly 13-minute, 46 days to open the show, followed by McGrupp. You have the cities, you have the dogs. Uh, David Bowie Encore, which I think at the time that was the first David Bowie in a year. Um, just a really great all, all around show that um, I remember it being on Mixler uh, and just loving listening to it live. And then I've gone back to it as well. I would definitely put this somewhere seven, eight, nine for me as well. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm old enough to remember a time when I had to carry my swaggy stems and seeds in a Ziploc bag and they would spill everywhere and make a mess and just be awful. But I don't have to do that anymore. That's right. Because we are sponsored by a company named Kush Supply Co. or Kush Co. They're the wonderful Osiris sponsor and partner who also happens to be the largest producer of packaging products for the cannabis industry. As medical and recreational cannabis continue to be legalized, one leader has emerged as the go-to company to produce state-compliant packaging for cannabis, and that is Kushko. What does that mean? States have varying laws about how marijuana can be packaged. They need to be child-proof, comply with labeling requirements, and so on. Kush knows all the regulations for every state. The packaging doesn't have to be ugly. Kushka works with producers to create their own branding on amazingly innovative boxes, tubes, bottles, and other packages, so they look amazing and function extremely well. Kushko also produces vaping hardware and supplies. If you've been in a cannabis dispensary lately, you've definitely seen Kushko products. Kushko has offices in 10 states, plus Canada and China. Please go to kushsupplyco.com slash podcast to learn more about what they're up to. The sooner you sign out with Kushko, the sooner you can stop using that worthless dugout for your one-hitter. It's time to step it up and get into the 21st century with some products from Kushko. And with that, let's go beyond the pond. So my number three, uh, so my, my top three, I'm not going to say they're interchangeable because I feel pretty strongly about my number one, but like my number two and three, I could have flip-flopped. I mean, it's very close. Um, and I have a feeling it's going to come up on one of your lists very high, but it, it, it's the December 30th show from MSG. And it's been really interesting because I felt like after that New Year's Eve run, it was like, are you a 1229 person or are you a 1230 person? Yeah. And <laughs> I love them both. I think everyone loved both. I'm maybe tipping my yes. hand here by putting 1230 at number three. I think it's a phenomenal second set. Um, uh, you know, it, it's no slight to it to put it at number three. Uh, you know, you got the like, cool Amber and Mercury in the in the leadoff spot again, kind of showing the confidence that they have in those new songs to put that song in such a prime spot. Um, and it delivers. Um, but really, I think the 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 money shots in this set are the everything's right, uh, which is just Huge. like a spectacular version of it. And then the version of and then light. Uh, is like just beautiful and that's another song that they really i think played beautifully in, in 2018 they really turned that into a great showcase in the second set uh you know at, at a couple of shows um and then of course you have split open and melt again uh which you know just a, another mind-blowing version of that i know for a lot of people this was like the show of that run and maybe of the year 
there are, are two shows that I like a little bit more than this one. But if it if it's your number one or anyone else's number one, I wouldn't argue against it. it, it it's a it's just a, a beautifully played show, um, you know, and it's why you're a fan of this band because they play shows like this. Yeah, I can't argue with that at all. That was very close to cracking my top five. I actually was at that show and I had a view up in um, the Chase Bridges at Madison Square Garden, which is where uh, like the Knicks and New York Rangers beat writers sit and like watch. And we were directly behind the stage, which actually was a pretty cool vantage point, like looking right down onto the band and just seeing the entire crowd spread out. Like during that Everything's Right, I was... I reached a new peak of enlightenment during that. That was that was a wash of sound. That was incredible. That performance, if, if we're going to rank like performances, just like songs, that would be, I think, it, you know, in most people's top five, probably. Like that, everything's right is so great. Probably my favorite overall show that I saw in 2018. And when we did our 50th episode about a, two or three months ago, we, we counted down our 10 favorite fish shows that we've seen of all time. And uh, we recorded it before I went to Vegas and released it after we, I came back, which we learned our lesson because I had a show that would have gone in there. But it's uh, November 2nd, um, set two. And as you guys will see with my top three, it's very weighted towards the the back end of the year, which reminds me a lot again of 2013, where the band just gained this momentum towards the end of the year that um, projected them forward in a lot of cases. But this set was such a pleasure to take in live. It had so much energy. Soul Planet, we're returning to Soul Planet. Guys, this is probably the 25th mention of soul planet and we probably i think we might have uh one or two more we'll see uh but excellent opening jam to the set um in the slot that i thought was going to get down with disease you get down with disease next you get gaiuti for i think the only the second time during the year um and then very crucial moment in a show and set overall they could have played anything after gaiuti and it would have gone one way or the other and they decided to go with sneaking sally and then light, and then um, slave to the traffic light. And to your point there, Stephen, in terms of light having an excellent 2018, I mean, I think it's in the running for like the comeback song of the year because 
aside from one or two versions in 20, well, I guess 2016 had a couple great jams on it, but 2017, there was, I think one or two lights played and they weren't very spectacular. Um, but for, for that song that meant so much to the band when they came out of the gates and 3.0 in 2009 to still be finding new ways to express itself and for the band to play the types of versions that they played at Dick's and then at Vegas and then a completely different version at um, MSG it's just such a statement for that and if you throw an encore into a second set I mean all I know is Trey came out for the encore and said this feels like an old show and that was one of those acknowledgements to the crowd's energy, to the set list, to the way that they jammed, that I just, being a Fish fan for almost 20 years now, I'd always wanted to experience that. So, love that. number three i picked the first set this is um i like it yeah i like it yeah i wanted to do this and i didn't i didn't have the guts so you, you you've got more guts man so i picked uh october 26 2018 from uh allstate and rosemont being um the first set of uh the friday night chicago show it's just a perfect first set this is everything i wanted to see in a first set and that it warms me up and yet has like some fantastically deep jams in it. First of all, I mean, the set starts off with punch you in the eye, which my money is the best fish show opener just from the, uh, like the scratching, the palm mutes, then jumping into the song with the screaming. And this version's actually like Trey actually plays around with kind of like the palm mute melodies, a little, this has a little bit of the extra muster on this punch you in the eye. It's a good version of Martian Monster. Axel is a great energy shot. And then Reba, which is a song they don't play nearly as much as they once did. And this is a very, the, comp, the composed version's great. The jam at the end is excellent. I mean, it's just a really good 15 minutes. Then My Sweet One, but... The money shot of this set is the sequence of Mercury into Bowie's Moon Age Daydream. So with this Mercury, this is really the first one to go, I guess, type two, as they say, in that it totally broke away from the Mercury key and the Mercury chord progression, and you got like an extra six or seven minutes of out-of-the-box jamming. And then it just slams into this Bowie cover, which was just perfect placement that's one of the best songs off of Ziggy Stardust in terms of like uh Fish's skill. This is the first version of the song. I know they played it the first night of Baker's Dozen and then Walls of the Cave. So what was kind of funny for me and Brian about this show is that um I know that Brian was seeing a Stars Born with his wife that evening and was not watching 
the <laughs> webcast. And I was at a Nick Cave and the Bad Seas concert, so I was not watching the webcast. I think we tweeted like, we're not watching the show, so no live tweets. We'll find out about it later. So we both love the song Mercury, and this was the first version of the song to go really deep. So there were actually like fans of Beyond the Pond on Twitter like tweeting at us saying like, ha ha, they're taking Mercury deep and you're not around to watch it. Like, screw you guys. <laughs> so that has like some sentimental value. So I was the only one, I was the only one to witness this live then because I was at this show and, um, and you're right. It was an amazing first set. It was so exciting to hear punch you in the eye. And I remember it kind of took them a while to get started because there was like some technical difficulties at the beginning. Uh, but then they slam into it and it kind of made it more dramatic because they started playing it and had to stop. So you knew it, I think he broke a string or it was like something you can hear it on the tape. Like he stops and people start. But it just kind of built like, oh, right. fuck, he's going to play Punch You in the Ice. It's going to be great. So he just he made his way a little bit longer. And then, you know, Mercury is a song that um, I like less than you guys, but, but just because I tend to prefer the songs that, like the long songs that aren't quite as composed, you know, like a song that kind of starts out and then becomes. It's a little more open-ended and allows for exploration while Mercury, you know, has movements. It's like a fluffhead type song. Uh, and so th- that can be a little bit harder for me to get into over the long haul. But like, as you said, that version really connected with me because they were able to take it to some different places. Uh, my only complaint about that set is that I was too drunk during that set. I was so excited, you know, to be there. And uh, I kind of sobered up in the second in the second set, and that was a really good set too. Um, but I was just like, "Oh fuck, I party too hard. I gotta I gotta bring it down here." So that was a show I enjoyed upon re-listens more so maybe than in the moment because I was I had to get my shit together uh, during the show. But it was an awesome time. I mean, the, the whole thing about those Rosemont shows too, like that's such a rock and roll arena. And like, and those shows definitely had like more of a kind of like an arena rock edge. Like when they played Auxilla, that's such an arena rock. I mean, that's like Fish almost doing like Van Halen type stuff, you know, like that's what it makes me think of when they play that song. And there was just so much energy in the room uh, during that set in particular uh it was so rowdy and dr- like everyone was just wasted in the room like it, it was it was like a friday night in chicago people wanted to rock and and you could tell that the band totally fed off of that you know because they just kind of ripped the roof off the building like we're not going to be subtle yeah we're gonna although they did do some as you said they did kind of dig deep at the same time but you know just when you start off with punch you in the eye I mean that song does punch you in the eye. Like you, you play that when you're ready to fucking rock, and they did, and that was, so that was a great rock show. That was that was rock show fish uh, that night.
Like I said, this could have been my number three, but I do feel like it's a very strong number two, and it is uh, 1023 from Nashville, the second set. And in particular, the Mike song, Into Ghost, is just a spectacular run. Like, I I mean, I like the rest of this set a lot. Um, You know, you have Set Your Soul Free, where they, they take that to some interesting places. You know, I'm always a sucker for when they play when the circus comes to town, just because before I liked Fish, I was a Los Lobos fan and I love the album Kiko. And that song in particular was like my number one wallow song <laughs> during a very bad breakup in my life. I would listen to when the circus comes to town all the time. So when I got into Fish and they I saw that they played that song. It, it kind of meant a lot to me. I was like, oh, wow, like this is another connection I have to this band that I'm starting to get into. Um, but, you know, the Hall of Fame moment is that like Mike's ghost. Uh, just just spectacular. You know, two very reliable songs, obviously, uh, in the Fish catalog. And it's just inspiring to hear them take it, to continue to take those songs into the stratosphere. Uh, I think the ghost in particular, um, you know, just, just uh, kind of, you know, taking it to some sort of ambient places, you know, for me in, in 2018, I, I've found myself fixating on page uh, probably more than anyone else. Um, I feel like I go through phases with different members of fish, like where, I'll really be into John for a while, and then I'll be really into Mike. And, of course, Trey is always such a dominant part of the band. But just Paige's, you know, his synth tones and, like, his electric piano tones. And I've just been dazzled. His his rig has been just – his rig has improved so much in the last two or three years. It's so epic, man. And he's not playing like – he's not doing a lot of just straight piano. You know, he's doing, like, a lot of different tones – and it adds so much to it, man. Especially like, you know, like with Fish, you know, people talk about Fish and the Grateful Dead and they go back and forth. And I love the Grateful Dead so much. But if you listen to a lot of Fish and then you listen to the Dead, one thing that's frustrating with the Dead is that the Dead never had a guy like Paige. No. You know, they never had a keyboard player that was that prominent and added that much to the sound. It was always someone who was kind of following Jerry, whoever, you know, whoever was in there usually. And, and, I've just been really once again appreciating everything that that page brings uh to the band and I I just feel like his playing in particular in that sequence is just spectacular. Um so um you know if we were talking about best sequences or again best individual performances the ghost from this set might be my number one or my number two or something i think it's that good i think it's the single best version of the song they played in 3.0 yeah (laughs) that ghost it's interesting that your your ear goes to page um my ear always goes to 
I've never heard Mike follow Trey the way that he does in that jam, in that he's almost elbowing Trey for prominence, and Trey's challenging him back, and they're like running circles around each other, and it shouldn't work. And somehow it's one of the most fascinating, one of the most brilliant segments of music that they've played all year. Um, I've never heard them just like, and, and Mike until recently could not keep up with Trey in this sort of manner. I mean, if you listen to any jam in the nineties, Mike is more complimentary than he is a leader. And he's gotten to this point in the last five years where I think from his own songwriting, his own band leadership, he feels like he can take a step forward and fish in a way that he just never could have in the first incarnation of the band. And I hear it so much. It's almost um, like the first thing that comes to mind is like when George Harrison started writing really great songs towards the latter eras of the the Beatles and this realization with John and Paul that they had someone else truly competing with them. And it's Mike just setting his his own tone and pushing the jam forward and trey wanting to lead as well somehow it works and i love listening to it every time but it boggles my mind how they do it jump in then with my with my number two um which is uh las vegas uh october 31st set two um the casbo box set uh, i i think ultimately this set is going to define the band for the next five years uh if not longer i think that what they've done with these songs is going to reinvigorate them inspire them uh steven you made a point earlier in the episode about you know how excited you are to hear these songs in 2019 i can't wait like now that we've gotten over the every song but everything but everything is hollow has been played twice now and um we know where they can kind of start to fit in a set um i can't wait to hear you know that one show in camden where they decide all right, tonight we're going to take Turtle in the Sky, Tur- uh, Turtle in the Clouds big. And they play it for like 18 minutes. Um, but in that moment, you know, for me, I, I, I took my dad to this show. It was his second fish show ever. And the whole combined experience of we got the playbill is my first Halloween show. Um, my I asked my dad if he knew who Casvolt Voxed was, and he was like, I have no idea. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was blown away, and he's reading the playbill, and he's like, holy shit, we're about to hear a band that like has inspired your favorite band, but nobody's ever heard of, and we're jumping online. And for you know at least an hour and a half, the, the, the gag was going on of, of everyone in the venue believed that they were about to play this uh, secret album that had been heard by you know a hundred people before, but had basically influenced Fish, and um, 
then to see them come out and play it. And, you know, as someone like my, I started to, to get the hints that this was actually, these were actually fish songs. When they started playing the songs, it was very clear that these were fish songs, but still taking that experience in seeing my dad hear new fish songs in the moment with the perspective that he had of coming into it as a Halloween show was uh, like one of the best paybacks I could ever give to him for introducing me to all the music that I love. Um, so yeah, this set sentimentally and I think also influentially for the band is just huge. Yeah. I mean, I think as a gesture, it's obviously like one of the highlights of the year that they would do something like that. Not yeah. just the set, but everything around it, you know, all uh, just the just the pains that they took to plant record reviews and, you know, and, and to kind of construct this mythology around the record uh, that didn't exist, you know, <laughs> that I think it's interesting seeing people from the outside look at fish and, and, you know, there's still, I, I think fish is kind of inching slowly and slowly closer to the mainstream in a lot of ways, but, you know, there's a lot of people that still don't really know anything about them. And I, and talking with people who knew about this and, and just seeing them kind of feel like, Oh, like that seems like a really fun thing for a band to do. Like, I don't know anything about fish. I'm not a fan of fish, but like, I kind of wish my favorite band did things like that. And I, I think it's just one of those things again, like where if you love this band, this is why you love them because they give you so much as a fan, you know, the fan experience you know, following this band, you know, there's no band that's as much fun right now to, to follow than fish. You know, like if, if you were into, you know, just on a daily basis, just following the shows is so much fun and, and, and seeing like how they evolve and, and doing this thing that we're doing right now, like we're ranking sets. Like there's no other band that you could do that with really. Like, I guess there's other jam bands, but you know, there, there's no band that, on fish's level that, is this creative uh, with every show? And then to have something like this, um, you know, like where they invent this band and they, they play a brand new set at one of its, at one of the most high profile gigs of the year for them, you know, it's such a courageous thing in a lot of ways for them to do that. Um, you know, I thought about putting this in my top five. I think my one thought against not putting it in is that I feel like a lot of the songs that they, like all the songs that they played there, I prefer, them kind of being out in the wild versus them being kind of presented mm -hmm. as an album. Like I felt like, again, like as a set, it felt like a little stiff and rehearsed because it had to be, you know, they were playing these songs for the first time. Um, it was, it's just kind of more exciting for me to hear a lot of these songs in the context of other fish songs, like in other sets. So that would be my one kind of like well that's why i didn't put it in my top five but again as a gesture and just as a stunt you know uh and as songs too because they're great songs you know i again this is like why you love this band that they would do something like this
got for my number two, December 29th, set two, uh, from the garden. So I was at, um, I was at the Friday, Saturday and Sunday shows. I did not go to New Year's Eve, but I was at the first three. And I know we've said in the past that, uh, the first show, the Friday show, the 28th just wasn't very good. It was, um, it was an okay as a rock concert, but kind of below Fish's standards, especially kind of below the standards they set with themselves for the New Year's run. No, with regards to 1229, there was uh, a little bit riding on this show, just because I thought the 28th was, 28th is one of those shows where you go and you say, oh, you know, I've got tickets to Sunday, do I really want to go to all three? Maybe I want to sell my tickets and catch up on Netflix, whatever the hell. But then you see the 29th and you're like, no, fuck, I'm going to all these shows. That was incredible. Right from the jump. I mean, the first set of the 29th was better than the entirety of 1228. Just a totally different energy level. They were going for the brass ring, and it seemed like they'd kind of forgotten on 1228. So on 1229, they open up with Carini. I thought to myself, oh, all right, here we go again. And it actually ended up being an incredibly short version of the song. Like he got, I know they um, broke into A major, which often Creaney ends up going really quickly. And it's as quickly as they broke into that, they broke out of it. Because Trey's like, fuck it, I want to play Tweezer. And the Tweezer, as some know now, kind of had a very pronounced China Cat Sunflower into I Know Your Rider style, uh, like transition jam, kind of like very much like the China Rider jam they played on uh, December 29, 1977, in fact. And I was, during this jam, and as it got closer and closer to the peak, this is, God, probably the most happy I've been at a Fish concert since August 15, 2015, from Rayward the Post Pavilion. I was doing jumping jacks, I was doing calisthenics, I was doing arm circles, I was howling. It was, I think it may be the most, we talked about maybe the most joyous jam they've done in Fish 3.0. That's how good it was. And then to do that, and then slam it into Death Don't Hurt Very Long, and then go back in the tweezer, and then play by their standards a very creative version of 2001, and what the, the 2001 would it go into um oh yeah first two of course like the most energetic solid throw your hands in the air thrust your fist set closer it was i think the set might have only been 65 minutes long it was like pretty short and yet there were no lulls just no lulls bam 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 maybe the most inspiring tweezer they played at madison square garden and they played a lot of them I think in terms of uh, a complete top-to-bottom show, I might prefer 12.30, just because they practically played two second sets at that show. But I just had such an emotional reaction at 12.29 that I've got to, at least for that set, put that over the top. As I'm, I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at or thinking about the shows and sets we've talked about. I know that there are two omissions to my top five that are essentially inexcusable, but what am I supposed to do? And that's this second set and 1023 second set. Um, and that 
I think really goes to show kind of the point that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode of how strong a lot of the sets were in 2018 and how many highlights there were throughout them. Um, all I'll say is I remember closing the webcast on December 29th and from there until they walked on stage and played Alumni Blues on December 30th, I was convinced that we'd seen the best show of the New Year's run and one of the best shows of the entire year and that there was absolutely no way that they were topping that. And uh, that has to be for wherever you fall and I'll reveal that here in a second, wherever you fall in terms of 1230 versus 1229 it's a great debate to be had it's a good sign of where the band is right now um it's, yeah the fact that we have to have the debate at all exactly is good. and it and it just goes to show that like had 1230 not happened the way it had 1229 would be unanimously celebrated with that show. Listeners, just wanted to give a quick shout out to another podcast on the Osiris Podcast Network that I have been binging on lately. It's called Daddy Unscripted. It's hosted by a guy named Tim Wheaton, lives in California. He's a dad, he's got two kids, and he's a dad who interviews other dads. Basically, it's about fatherhood, it's about family, everyone's got an interesting story to tell, it's very well produced. Tim is an excellent host, and he really brings out the best in uh, in his subjects. I know Beyond the Ponds, Brian Brinkman actually recorded recorded an episode. I learned some stuff about Brian that I didn't even know, and I mean he has guests ranging from fellow podcasters to other musicians, such as other members of uh, the band Humphreys McGee. He recently had a, an episode I loved with uh, the retired major league pitcher Ryan Dempster turns out to be fascinating really if you enjoy good stories about fatherhood good stories about life i would recommend this podcast highly so i would definitely check out daddy unscripted part of the osiris podcast Well, there's not a lot of uh, suspense here if you've been paying attention. Like, I tipped my hand about this before. 1229 is my uh, number one set, the second set. And really, I would actually, for me in my mind, when, when I listen to this show, I actually 
absorb the Wolfman's brother party time medley, you know, or like what party time is like the sandwich inside Wolfman's brother. The, you know, basically that, you know, that the conclusion of the first set, I sort of like absorb that into the second set because that's, that, that's just so, you know, as you were saying, David, is there's so much joy in this show. It, 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 you could you could make a case for other sets being more cerebral or more experiment, you know, more experimental, or you know, they're, maybe they're pushing themselves harder, you know, in other sets this year. But in terms of just pure enjoyment of pushing my buttons and delivering, you know, that that feeling that listening to fish gives me, like this set delivered. The most and you know as i said before i'm always a sucker for carini so i loved hearing that at the beginning but as you said they kind of didn't really stick in that very long it's only i think it's about a six or seven minute version of it and then they go into tweezer and it's just a incredible tweezer as you said it it uh it really kind of goes I really like that that China Cat. I know you know you writer uh, analogy. I think that's a really good way to describe it. I mean, it really is a journey in that song, and then to drop into Death Don't Hurt Very Long, which is like one of my favorites of the new songs. It, it's just such a a funky little song. Kind of reminds me of like a Little Feet song a little bit. And then um, going back into Tweezer, and then No Quarter. You know, again one of the things I love about Carini is it's sort of like Zeppelin. It's kind of like their Zeppelin song. I feel like in a lot of ways. So like whenever you can get Carini and no quarter in the same set and they're playing it at MSG, which of course is a very famous Led Zeppelin venue. I always love hearing that. And just, and, and, and then flowing in 2001 and first tube. I mean, I, I just feel like I have a smile on my face throughout this entire set. It flows really well. You know, to kind of bring in the personal for me for this show, I I got into a car accident the day before this show on the twenty. It wasn't like it wasn't like a major one. I kind of like fucked up my car, but um, it was it was a pretty intense day. So to have this show the next day to listen to and to kind of just totally again kind of take me out of that shittiness and to. Uh, it, it just experienced the kind of joy that you can get from this band. It was such a great thing for me. So um, I could see people picking 1230 um, in terms of, again, I think it's probably, a, um, I think they're taking it probably to, as you said, there's kind of like two second sets in that show basically. But to me, 1229 is just more fun. So I'm going with the more fun show at the top of my list. Death don't hurt very long 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 Ah! Frozen in place Cast into space Death don't hurt very long Death don't hurt very long. 
So my number one, probably not any surprise either, but uh, worth mentioning is uh, December 30th, set two. Um, simply put, I think this is the best second set of 2018, and I think it's easily one of the best 10 sets of the entire 3.0 era. Um, if I saw this set, I could leave fish behind forever and just be happy. It, um, the psychedelic aspect to it, the song selection, you know, when I talk about a set like 722 or 1229, 2013, uh, this just feels like fish is crafting a live album. And I've become really obsessed in the last couple of years, probably since big boat came out because I thought big boat was pretty underwhelming and I didn't totally know why the band was choosing to make a record like that at the time. I've been really obsessed with this idea of how fish can reinvent almost the rock album and how they can use their live sets to basically craft albums in the moment. And I, that was part of the reason I loved the Casbo Vox approach because that now sounds like a, a record uh, when you listen to it. Um, this set I put on Cool Amber and Mercury and I'm not turning it off until the end of uh, Split Open to Melt. It bobs and weaves through big jams like Everything's Right, Light, The Plasma. You've got your Waiting in the Velvet Sea as kind of your cool down in the, you know, slot right before the album closer. Um, and it's just, it's very psychedelic. It's very creative. It's very inventive. I, I love, love, love this set. You can't stop the set in the middle. <laughs> you must listen to it. <laughs> it's like my, my dad always told me when... Uh, when I got my first iPod, you know, he, he said, you're cheating music. Um, and this was very much of his get off my porch thing. But I think he's right to a certain extent. He said, um, you're cheating music when you got an iPod? He said, when, when, we, were, when we were your age, you'd, put, you'd put, drop a needle and you couldn't, you couldn't uh, change to the next song. You had to listen all the way through. And he's right to a certain extent, even though I'm a devotee of streaming music at this point. You know, 1230 also has a really great first set. Too. I mean, yes. That, and you know, maybe. I mean, I, I love the first set of twelve twenty nine too. I think they, you know, I mean, twelve thirty's first set. I would say is probably better than the first set from twelve twenty nine. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it really is like. The, I mean, those two shows are just are just so great, man. I mean, it, it just uh, it was so fun following them during that time I mean, because i just remember seeing people after 1229 being like this is one of the best fish shows i've seen ever like i got i heard, yeah. I heard a couple <laughs> people talk about that and then 1230 dropped and all of a sudden it was like this is the best show i've ever seen and it just became this kind of cool thing where it was like man are they even going to play on new year's eve you know it's like right. how are they gonna how are they gonna top these two shows and you know and, and they they didn't top those two shows no. um but uh, yeah, it was just, just incredible that they played those back to back. You know, what a way to end! They say they were the best two back to back, twenty ninth and thirtieth, since nineteen ninety seven, and I don't think that's oh, yeah. that's not even up for debate if you go back and listen to a bunch of them.
but my number one is Steven's number two being uh, set to from Nashville October 23rd. That Mike song into Ghost is my favorite consecutive 33 minutes of fish in 2018. It's just, it's that goddamn good. There's parts of that ghost that sound like Queens of the Stone Age. Just <laughs> like Trey is trying to scale these peaks and Mike's bass. It's, it's, it almost sounds like he's swinging like a spike bat. In particular, I'm thinking of um, kind of like the solo of the Queen song, um, Little Sister off the Lullabies to, Par- uh, Lullabies to Paralyze album. Because I think it's in like the same key. Or there's like some... Whatever. For some reason, the fact that like that part of Ghost puts like Quasa in my head should like attest to its quality. And then that Mike song, it goes from being normal Mike's, and then Trey takes into like a bright C major jam, and it just fourteen minutes of awesome. That's that whole set is good. The everything's right. Uh, it gets quite dark towards the end. Excellent set your soul free. Um you know, really good showcases for some of like the newer fish songs. But yeah, like Stephen was saying to me that Mike's ghost has no parallel in 2018 just for being like the best 33 minutes of fish rock and roll. And actually that Nashville show was one of the few nights of the fall that was not webcast. I know they actually gave a free, they gave a free webcast for the next night, Nashville night two, which was a good show. It did not scale the heights of the night before, but that was, um, yeah, then Astros, everyone, unless you were there, you had to use the mixer. And I just had my feet up on the coffee table and kept turning to my wife saying, like, this never happens. This never happens. What is going on? And even she was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, I was looking, <clears throat> I was looking at your list, uh, David, and you picked... You picked two midweek shows in your top five, which I think is interesting. Yeah, normally I wouldn't say, I mean, in the past, Fish has kind of mailed in like the Tuesday, Wednesday nights that aren't like on the East Coast. Right. Like, I think. But, I, but yeah, like, like David, you had that Nashville show, though, and that San Francisco show from uh, the July 24th show, which I think was like a Tuesday or Wednesday yeah. night, right? Because that was, that was right after the Gorge. I think that was a Tuesday night. It was right after the Gorge. Yes, um, right. and uh, yeah, I think they're both Tuesday shows. Actually, Nash- that Nashville and that San Francisco show are both Tuesday shows. Uh, yeah, they're both like phenomenal shows and, and like super phenomenal Maybe Tuesday and shows. Friday, I think yeah. the show this summer in <laughs> Toronto is like on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So all these like freaks are gonna like go over the border to see this like Tuesday night Toronto show. I'm thinking that show's gonna be terrible. I'm- Maybe not. Still got you on the horn, Steve. I know we wanted to talk about um, 
you know, examples of, I guess, like cast vote Vox, like Swerves with like other bands, yeah. kind of like the late career. I mean, we don't know when Fish career is going to end, but kind of like the late career Swerve that ends up invigorating the band and the fan base. I know. Well, I mean, it's because you, I know you were like trying to talk about like other examples of that. And it's hard to think of other examples because I mean, fish is at, they're at such a unique juncture in their career. I mean, they've been, you know, this is, I guess the 30th anniversary of their first record coming out this year. And if you want to say that, I guess they started gigging in like what, 85 or so 85, 86. So like, you know, they've been, to, and it's like the same guys too in the band which is another unique thing about them so there's not you know so for a band to still be making records at this point and touring and all that you know they're really unique and i would say like not just that record being a, a left turn but you know all the things that fish does like the baker's dozen i think is another example that you would point to and say how many bands at this juncture in their career would even attempt something like that you know, this is usually the point where bands are sort of locking in to a set list that they know works. You know, um, they're not. It's almost uncharted territory. Yeah. You, you don't see a lot of bands saying, I'm going to play, we're going to play the, one of the most famous arenas in the world, you know, for, you know, a couple weeks. And we're going to play, uh, we're not going to have any re- repeats during those shows. Like, there's no other band in the world that would do that. And there's very, I mean, there's really no other band really in rock history that would do that. I mean, I can't think of another example. Like, The Dead never did that. You know, like, no band would ever do that. So, you know, that's another example of them kind of being in uncharted territory. I mean, you know, you could, like, an example that came to mind, I don't know if this reinvigorated either party, but it was certainly a left turn. It would be like, Lou Reed and Metallica deciding to make a record mm. together and coming up with Lulu, you know, like that is an example, like Metallica being a huge band and them saying like, we're going to make a record with Lou Reed and it's going to be this sort of experimental record. I actually think Lulu um, is better than its reputation uh, suggests. I think there actually are some like kind of interesting songs on yeah. there on sort of like an intellectual level like it's not really a record you're like gonna put on at the end of the day when you want to crack a beer and and just listen to some fun jams you know but like again as a gesture it's kind of cool that like oh metallica was like let's back up lou reed and kind of make this sort of semi-improvisational record that is unlike anything else we've ever done and it's probably going to alienate a lot of our fans you know which it did um so that comes to mind as an example and maybe on some level that invigorated Metallica to feel like we're not just going through the motions. Like maybe that kind of fired up their own sort of creativity in a way to make a record like that. Um,
million chicks to make life hold and make it stick. Not running heat that flames in out, but the proud piece of ice that always floats ice, honey. I mean, it's interesting because, like, the Casbo box, when, like, we talked about how ridiculous it was that Fish created a band and created a backstory to throw off their fan base to debut an album, that could have fallen on its face. Like, if if they didn't have a fan base that was receptive to that, but also if those songs weren't good, it could be this kind of weird, lukewarm flavor, you know, taste that we have in our mouth of, yeah, Fish tried something and it just did not work at all. Well, those songs are really and good. I think that that like, yeah, exactly. And, exactly. Like, and, and, and I think that that's like, that's like the courageous thing about it is you, you look at like Lou Reed and Metallica and they tried something, they tried like a big experiment and it's been tepidly received by critics and by the fan base. The exact same thing could have happened with Fish with Casbolt Box. And that's not to say that those songs are, are bad, or that these are better. It's just, um, it's wild when you get to this point in your career, um, you have to keep taking risks to stay fresh. And sometimes they're going to completely work and sometimes they're going to fail miserably. Well, and what's, what's great about fish is that, you know, they, they take this risk, they make up a fake band and they write, you know, this new album, uh, that they debut, you know, at the Halloween show, one of their biggest shows, and it goes over really well. Especially in comparison to like what they did the last Halloween show, which, you know, they do something much safer, which is covering David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. And I don't know how you guys feel about that. Like I was pretty underwhelmed by that. Mm -hmm. My main disappointment with that is that there are so many other David Bowie records that I would prefer Fish to cover. Like any of the Berlin era records, I think like if they'd done low, I think that would have been awesome. Um, or Station to Station, which is like not technically Berlin, but like right before, like the title track, just imagining Fish playing that. I think that song alone would have been awesome. But I think all the songs on that record would have suited Fish well. Um, but they did sort of the, the most predictable record and one not really suited to their strengths. And Well, and one that they had really floated the idea that they were going to play for the festival eight. Um, that was one of the last records in the running for that festival. And I know a lot of the fan base, I was part of it at the time was really, really hoping that it was going to be Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust. It just felt like the right record for them to play. Then in hindsight, now exile on main street was probably the best choice, but I was definitely underwhelmed when I found out that Ziggy was, it, it felt like, there were a lot of really great. I understand why they did it. There were a lot of really great tributes to Bowie that in 2016. Um, I don't know if Fish necessarily needed to do that at that point in their career, but well, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but like a lot of the covers that they've done on Halloween, I feel like they don't have a lot of replay value other than Remain in Light. That's I mean, yeah, that's the Remain in Light one is awesome. Yes, and like like the White Album or Quadrophenia. Like I don't really go back. And, and like the little feet one to me is like the most disappointing. Like I, I'm, I'm like actively bored by that set. And I, I, and I just feel like that is something I would have expected them to kill, but it's like when they, uh, I don't know. I, I felt like, well, the problem with little feet, I mean, 
Waiting for Columbus is such like an atmospheric live record. Like you put that record on your your room, wherever you play it, your room instantly fills up with weed smoke. Well, and like, it's well, just, like for me, like that's not my. I feel like, you know, that's the most famous Little Feet record, and I feel like they're kind of past their peak on that record. Like I love mid seventies Little Feet. Like I don't know if you guys ever have listened to like bootlegs from like seventy four. Or 75, like when they're playing a lot of like Feats Don't Feel Me Now era stuff. That shit is awesome. Like that is like really funky and groovy. And like I feel like Waiting for Columbus is kind of coked out. And it's not, it's good, but it's not like Lowell George like was not in his best shape at that point. Like he died, I think. I think that record came out in 77, 78. And he, and and Mm -hmm. Lowell. Die yeah, he died in 79. 80? And, um, right, you kind of produced Shakedown Street in 78, even though he was too really coked out to do much. Yeah, and that. he was, you know, and I think he was getting bigger. It's weird because like, he, he did a lot of drugs, but he was also like a big guy. You'd think like if you're doing that much coke, you would be like skinnier. But like he did a lot of coke and also got big. So like I don't know how that works out because coke is supposed to kill your appetite. But anyway um, – Anyway, I, I I would say like listen like dig up some little feet bootlegs like seventy three seventy four seventy five I feel like is their sweet spot as a live band. Do you have and any then, particular tapes? I'm I'm, I'm I pulled them up on uh, the Internet Archive. Do you have any particular tapes that you recommend? Um, let me. I'm I'm going to my iTunes here. Um, there's like a there's a live. It's like they're they're like in a radio studio. Um, like. July 19th, uh, 73 is really good. I have one from like April of 73. That's really good. Um, yeah, Ultrasonic Studios. Um, it's uh, September 19th, 1974. The, there's, a, there's a thing in the middle where they play Spanish Moon and then go to Skin It Back. And it's like, it's fucking awesome. Like that is so... It's just really funky, and it's it, it just sounds more intimate. Like waiting for Columbus is like their sort of arena rock era, and like it, it, again, it's really I'm not I'm not I don't want to diss that record too much. I think it's really great and it deserves to be iconic and everything. But like I kind of like the funkier Little Feet of like the mid seventies. I feel like that is like their real prime. It's almost like listening to the Stones and like. Um, like 1971 versus like 1978, you know, like if, if you're going to hear like live tapes, you know, like, like, like right, you're rather listen to like pre-exile versus like some girls. Yeah. Like, like, you know, like we're like, you know, every band in, in the late, every band in the late seventies, like on live records, they play a little too fast and like, it sounds a little too <laughs> trebly, you know, <laughs> like there's not a lot of bottom end. There's not enough bottom end. On a lot of those like late seventies live records, because everyone's just coked out when they're mixing those records. That's the Grateful Dead in '83. <laughs> right. Grateful Dead in '83, '84. We call it called '83 Jerry's. Yeah. Speed, which is basically the complete opposite of like Bobby Weir Dead and Co. Speed. <laughs> and we all know why they played really fast '83. <laughs>
one thing I was thinking of when I was I was trying to figure out uh, something that kind of exemplifies where fish, what, like what fish did with Caswell Vox and um, kind of this late career left turn was uh, the Paul McCartney and youth duo, the Firemen, that uh, came out in early 1993. Uh, the record strawberries oceans ships and forests um and i was reading a little bit about this because this was mccartney had just finished recording off the ground and pretty good record by the way went into the studio not bad pretty good record went into the studio with this guy with uh this dj youth who he was uh recommended to by uh, his friend um and they took old McCarthy recordings and started dubbing them down and started making electronic versions of them. And Paul was going to be kind of, he was going to step aside from the project and then decided to throw himself into it and ended up releasing this record without telling anyone it was Paul McCartney. I think it came out shortly thereafter, but there's a quote he, I, I found of him talking about this record and kind of comparing it to um, Sergeant Peppers. And he said, the, the whole idea behind Sgt. Peppers was to create a band that they could pretend that they were that band and not the Beatles. So they made a record with that in mind. Uh, it's a very joyful way to record. Sometimes it can be pretty scary, which is okay. It's very quick. And he, en- he enjoyed the process because of how exhilarating it was. And that struck me immediately as where Fish is right now, maybe they had to step back and say, let's don the characters of this made up band to figure out this next step forward and to figure out how to get creative juices flowing again so that you know over the next two three four years we're producing as challenging music as unique music that keeps us invigorated and keeps this whole thing going think that, that that's a great point you know one of the things that really jumped out to me about that gq piece that that trey was in was when he talked about he made a list of all the things that he had lost because he had become a drug addict and the number one thing he put on his list was sense of humor and and he talked about how you know with the other guys in fish that they could always laugh together. They could always have a good time and that he had lost that. And it made him feel so sad and ashamed. And I know for me as a, as a listener, 
one of the things I always respond to with fish is the sense of, of playfulness and the idea that that they go out there and they take it seriously, but there's also this sense of, you know, we're just going to throw it against the wall. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You know, we're, we're just kind of exploring here. We're having fun, but we're together and we're friends and, and it's a great experience. And to me, like that Halloween set comes out of that spirit. You know, I feel like, um, I mean, I, I haven't read, like, I don't know whose idea that was, but I could just see that kind of being like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? You know, wouldn't it just be kind of fun to, like, make up a band and, like, we'll we'll convince some websites to post reviews and we'll kind of turn it into a thing and people will speculate about it and we'll wear these costumes and it'll be, like, a really fun thing. And they obviously put a lot of thought into the songs and, like, it's not a goof. You know, they take it seriously. But, again, like, just the sense of fun and 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 the, and the humor in it is what I really take from that and what I really respond to. And, you know, kind of going back to where Fish is at right now, you know, you do feel like they're in a place where they're really enjoying each other. It seems like they're really enjoying being in a band and that there is a real kind of sense of like all for one and one for all. Like they're all contributing. They're all playing really well. They seem to have a good time on stage. They seem to have hit this sort of, point in their career where they know we can play about what 40 shows a year or so and it'll be fun we can make a lot of money but we're not going to burn ourselves out and we have time to do other things in our lives but we also still can preserve this great thing that we've built together and it just seems like a like a great setup that they have that they can just kind of keep you know growing but they kind of have this thing that they can just kind of move forward now you know for as long as they they want to so um you know the, the you know the there is that thing about kind of retrenching and and wanting to move forward but it, to me it's also i don't know i just get a sense of like them kind of rediscovering like that thing that they had when they were younger guys you know we can still laugh together we can do this kind of fun thing i mean like what i mean like to me like uh, my suspicion is that they had these songs and then they came up with the concept to tie it together after the fact. Like, I don't like when yeah, I listen right. to it, they just sound like fish songs. They don't really sound like they're that radically different from what yes. they've done before. It's kind of like, you know, Sgt. Pepper when the Beatles, like, or, or when McCartney came up with that concept, you have the first song, which introduces the concept, but then like the rest of it doesn't, you know, and with a little help from my friends kind of builds on it. Like the rest of the album doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, right. like a fake band, you know, right. it's just the Beatles, but it, it, like you set up a concept and you like, Maybe the because uh, like, I feel like the first song kind of t- is sounds the most like yeah some sort of like like European King. synth thing, and then the rest of well, it. Well, that was my that was my experience. That was my experience there in the moment. Was you know I knew when they dropped when they came out for the second set that it was these were fish songs because um, I'd, I'd been reading about it in the set break, and then they played Turtle in the Clouds, and I, my first thought was wait, maybe they fooled the crowd. Maybe they fooled everyone once again, and these actually are Casual Box. Like maybe that actually means, maybe that is an actual band. 
<laughs> and then they played Stray Dog, and I was like, oh, no, no, these are all fish songs. Like, that's this, right. this is all, you know, just an elaborate hoax. Yeah, definitely Turtle in the Clouds has that late 70s can, not the cool, like, Ibamiasi, like, Tego Mego <laughs> right. can. But, like, when they got, like, a new bass player and, let, like, decided to let the bass player sing against their better judgment, kind of has that, like, sound to it. But I was thinking... um, one of my favorite bands who unfortunately no longer exists. This was their last album, but people forget that Rush, um, they're considered a prog rock band, but for not until like the late seventies, they hadn't really made any prog rock albums. Like the late seventies, they had stuff. 2112 hemispheres, like the big side length, like Ayn Rand influence epics. But, for what ended up being their last album, Clockwork Angels, instead of writing about, um, like Neil Peart was kind of writing more about like religion, the politics of the day, he actually went back to making like a whole fanciful story. Like that album actually has like a big goofy prog rock story about some guy finding his way in like a steampunk world, like an evil watchmaker. In the songs, there's a song about like people and like shipwrecks and they lead people to shipwrecks. Like, so in order to kind of for Rush to, I think, make maybe their best record since like the early 90s, they kind of had to get out of themselves and make like a big, ridiculous story to go along with it. Not only that, but um, the tour that Rush did behind Clockwork Angels, they actually ended up playing the whole album back to front with like an orchestra. That was the second set. And the first set was all these like synth pop songs from like the eighties. So they really got behind that concept and kind of took it as far as it could go, subjecting their audience to their final record in full. And that's actually, that's a really good record. Despite the fact that, um, Oh, it's produced by Nick Rasculinit. So I can't stand because I don't think he has a very good ear for mixing and there's a lot of riffs that have a bit of a cut and paste nature, but that's pretty legit rush. I think it's like their 19th studio record or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that record and I love that tour. They were playing a lot of songs from Power Windows, I think it right. was, yeah. in the first set, which exactly. um, actually made me go back to that record because yeah. I noticed they were, before I saw the show, I saw, I noticed that they were playing a bunch of songs from that record. It made me dive into that. And I actually quite like that record. I mean, R- I mean, Rush is like pretty consistently good, like throughout their career. Right? I feel like their catalog, there's not a lot of duds. I think like maybe towards the end of the '80s, it started getting a little like you know, like Hold Your Fire and some of those records. I, I, I will, love. I will, but, will totally stand for Hold Your Fire. I love Hold Your Fire. But like, yeah, because like even those records, they're not duds. They're still good songs. You know, maybe some production choices aren't your favorite, but right. you know, the duddiest um, record I thought was the one before Clockwork Angels, which was Snakes and Arrows. Which the first song, Far Cry, is an incredible rush single, and then it gets very leaden and very slow and kind of forgettable. I, I would put that near the bottom of the pile, and then the one before that, Vapor Trails. That was kind of Neil was finding his footing again. 
is about half good. Yeah, I thought Snakes and Arrows was better than Vapor Trails. Like Vapor Trails, they ended up really huh. kind of. I mean, I don't know. Like Vapor Trails, they ended up re-releasing because like the original mix was like so bad, right? I mean, it was, yeah, right. Wasn't there, like a new mix of it. Um, I mean, you know, Vapor Trails is interesting just because of like yeah, like Neil Peart coming back from like you know so much personal tragedy. Um, so it has that going for it. I mean, like what was so cool about Clockwork? angels too is that it came on the heels of that documentary about them uh which is like one of my favorite movies of the decade and it it, they really became i think almost more popular than ever i mean there were so many people i think that discovered them because of that movie and um they kind of got mainstreamed in a way that they hadn't been before well and they did the movie and then they might have had the Time Machine tour, which is like hits, plus they played moving pictures front to back. And then Clockwork Angels came out and then the tour. But yeah, that was definitely a reinvigoration, plus that movie with Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel. I love you, man, where they go to like, they bond over like the Rush concert. There's definitely some parallels between Rush and Fish, I believe, like in terms of yeah. the following. And I feel like just the dynamic in the band, you know, certainly getty lee and alex lifeson their friendship is such a like heartwarming part of that band and i always feel like with fish when like the best times in that band are like when those guys were vibing as people you know and that's like when that's what's so sad when you listen to them in the early 2000s and you can see you kind of hear that they're not together in the way that they were throughout the nineties and, and why it's so cool now to, you know, witness them kind of rebuild that relationship and, and, and get to a place where they're, you feel like they're together as like a family when you listen to them. And now with Rush now, there's so many people want them to like, I don't know. There's all these rumors that like Getty and Alex will make music together. Maybe they'll get like the former drummer from dream theater to play with them. Neil's basically done. But I know, you know, if there happens to be more Getty, Lee, or Alex Lifeson solo records, I'll be totally on board for those. Yeah, I was talking with my friend Tom is like a huge Rush fan. And uh, he was kind of upset about Getty and Alex doing something. He was a little, or he was at least voicing some displeasure about that. But I'm like, fuck, no, they should do stuff. You can't stop them just because Neil can't. He's got arthritis and wants to be with his kid. That's fine. I mean, as long as, if they don't call it Rush, I don't see a problem with it. I mean, I right. If they want to make music together, you know, they should. I mean, because you know, again, with all of these great artists, you have to always remember that everything is finite. You know, there's going to be a time when you can't see these people anymore, so you have to appreciate it when it's here. And that'd be such a damn purist all the time, <laughs> you know? It's like, it's just music, you know? It should be shared, it should be played, you know? And with those guys, they have a lot of great songs. I'd still want them to play Rush songs, too. Like, play some Rush songs along with your new songs, you know? Like, keep that music alive.
Steven, thank you very much for coming on. We love having you. I would uh, absolutely, once again, recommend to all of our listeners check out the Celebration Rock podcast. I know it's on a little bit of a hiatus, right? Right now? Yeah, we've got some other projects going that actually pay me money, okay. so I have to focus on that for a while. There you go. But it'll, it'll, it'll probably be back later this year. Okay. So, yes. So... We are looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to your, your future projects. But listener, come back and I think probably about two weeks at this point. We'll hold hands. Yeah. One 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 week. We've got a we've got a Mexico episode. Oh God, Mexico. You see, yes. we're so hardcore. We just like forget about Mexico because that feels. That feels like bonus fish to me, Mexico. Are you guys go, are you, be watching that on the couch. So you, you, oh God, you're no. not going to Mexico? Okay. No, I'm going to be not, couching that. Not going. Maybe I'll import a sandbox and get some palm trees in my living room. <laughs> yeah. Drink everything with a little umbrella. Exactly. <laughs> Only margaritas, no beer, unless it's Corona. So on that note, come back in that one week. We will hold hands. We will try to avoid fish myopia. And we'll go beyond the pond. Osiris.